joining us for the PARP inhibitors, best practices in advanced prostate cancer care in the community live webinar. We are excited to have you all with us and look forward to an exciting discussion with the faculty. Before we get started, we have a few housekeeping notes to review. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates as internet live activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA category one credits. The AUA would like to thank AstraZeneca and Merck for providing independent educational grants in support of this activity. Finally, I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Ashley Ross for his time, talent and expertise in developing this program. So um, to highlight the best practices in the care of advanced prostate cancer uh, patients in the community setting, including clinical coordination of care, shared decision-making, and the more prominent role of telemedicine, uh, the AUA has put together this activity. We have a few learning objectives that we want to go through tonight. The first is to um, describe the components of a urologic prostate cancer care clinic and identify ideal structures we can incorporate into our practices. The second is to identify opportunities for shared uh, care and team-based approaches for patients with advanced prostate cancer. The third is to discuss the impact of shared decision-making on, on patient and patient clinic, uh, clinician communication. And finally, to talk about how telemedicine can be successfully incorporated into the, continu into the continuum of care for patients with advanced prostate cancer. It's now my pleasure to introduce you two of our um, subject matter experts that are joining us this evening. First is Dr. Ben Lowentritt. He received his doctorate of medicine from the Baylor College of Medicine and then completed his medical residency at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, where he then did a, uh, then after which he did a fellowship in robotic, laparoscopic, and endoscopic urology at Tulane. Since that time, Dr. Lowentritt has distinguished himself as a clinician, trialist, and researcher. He served as the past president of the Mid-Atlantic section of the AUA uh, and the Baltimore Medical City Society. He also serves on the board of directors of MedCi, the Maryland State, Medi uh, Maryland State Medical, and uh, on the medical advisory board for Zero, the end of prostate cancer. Since 2018, Dr. Lowentritz has been the director of the prostate cancer services for United Urology, uh, after serving as the directive of the prostate cancer care pro program for Chesapeake Urology. Dr. Lowentritt and his team work to build and optimize um, a service line for prostate cancer patients. I'd also like to introduce Dr. David Morris. Dr. David Morris con uh, completed his medical training at Vanderbilt and then his residency training at the University of Michigan. He spent dedicated research time looking at uh, precision medicine through pred predictive uh, genomic markers for bladder and prostate cancer. And then after finishing training, he joined uh, the Urology Associates uh, LUGPA group in Nashville, Tennessee. And there he's been co-directing the Advanced Therapeutic Center and Research Division of Urologic Associates for the last eight years and serves as a practice president for the last two years. He's also a very accomplished trialist and um, a very accomplished leader in the, in the area of managing men with advanced prostate cancer. Welcome Drs. Uh, Lowentritt and Morris, and thank you for being here tonight. We'll now move on to, the, to our first segment, which is gonna talk about the components of urology care and team-based approaches uh, for advanced prostate cancer clinics. And maybe I'll start with, um, with you, Dr. Lowentritt, and just ask you, can you just set the stage? Most of our audience may already um, be aware, but can you talk about how prostate cancer care has evolved in the advanced care setting? And, and with that, how has the role of the urologist perhaps evolved over time? Oh, thank you. Thanks, Dr. Ross, for having me, and and uh, I appreciate the question. You know, I do think this really informs where we are now, is where we've we've been in care of prostate cancer, um, and uh, you know, this was a disease that, as it advanced, the primary treatment has long been hormonal mediated therapies. So, you know, the ability to treat people with hormonal agents is something that's been part of urologic education, urologic practice for a long time. Um, and what we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is just a rapid additional uh, number of treatments that are that are available. But 
really initially built off of some of those hormonal treatments. So I think it, it kind of allowed us to, as, as urologists, to continue to build our, um, on our existing skills and our existing comfort level and incorporate some of the new therapies that came along, um, which initially were you know, more bone mediated agents that were came along in the late 2000s and then immunotherapy to the novel hormonal agents, radiopharmaceuticals, all the things that have come along have, you know, we've, we've been able to gradually incorporate into our practice. So I, I think, um, you know, it, it, this is something that, that as urologists, we've long been uh, comfortable treating. Um, so as new treatments come out, we're very, you know, many of us are very motivated to continue to add those into our armamentarium to, to combat this disease. And then maybe to get into the more like sort of specifics um, for the, um, or specific disease states, I'll turn to you, Dr. Morris, and say, let's start with the journey of a patient in your, um, in your prostate cancer clinics who has newly diagnosed metastatic disease. How do you approach that patient? How does your advanced practice model look at that patient? So that's probably the, uh, probably the most common new diagnosis, it seems like, in our advanced prostate cancer clinic. Um, and uh, we, we try to incorporate everything that's done in a multidisciplinary setting uh, in the academic world, uh, like for you, Northwestern, that, that we can offer in the community. And so it typically begins with a discussion of, of ADT therapies, uh, additional layering with the newer um, novel hormonal therapies on top of it that now have NCCN and AUA support from their guidelines. And, and for the correct patient, we'll sometimes incorporate uh, potentially referrals for uh, chemotherapy. Um, and to our medical oncology colleagues in the community, it's really just about building that network of referral patterns that allow you to get them to a medonc who does a lot of urology because prostate cancer is not the primary disease state for most community oncologists. So you have to really work to find somebody who understands so much that has changed in the last five to 10 years within prostate cancer. So um, we, we try to offer all those things from the very beginning. Um, it's really, uh, I think now a standard of care to offer combination therapy to every patient with a newly diagnosed metastatic de novo disease. And so we really encourage that. It's not the right choice for everyone, but certainly everyone needs to hear about that as an option. And then there's subsets that maybe need that chemotherapy. There's subsets that of smaller volume metastatic disease that may benefit from a combination approaches with radiation therapy to their metastatic lesions. And so, and then there's even a subset that may benefit from local therapy if they have small volume metastatic lesions. So we try to identify and parcel out those unique situations and then incorporate um, the radiation oncologist and medical oncologist in the community. So just to unpack that a little bit, um, one thing Dr. Lowentritt is, you know, a lot of when it, sometimes life used to be easier when we were just giving, you know, androgen deprivation therapy with injections, the, uh, you know, the coverage for the patients, a lot of these guys are older and on Medicare and their coverage was easier. You know, as Dr. Morris said, the standard of care, the category one evidence is to do sort of more dense androgen deprivation or some other combination systemic therapy up front for most of our men. Um, and that means that a lot of them are going to run into some financial issues early, potentially. Um, you know, with the oral agents, you know, how have you, um, how does your practice sort of uh, um, uh, approach that with these men? No, there's there's no question that that to truly advocate and and get the patients on the treatments that you want, part of that work now is supporting the the process, right? Unfortunately, the financial process. So. Um, we do have a team that's that for patients that are allowed to, we can actually dispense medications to, and that that's a part of our practice. And by having that, we've been able to build a team of people that can support whether they're getting their medicines through us or through someone else, uh, to be able to support the patients um, getting getting to the point where they can get it filled. Whether that's the prior authorization requirements, copay support the appeals that inevitably happen. So, you know, it is it is part of, unfortunately, it's now part of the process for all of these patients. And, and you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it, it's it's not really a choice. I mean, it's if, we, uh, if we're not helping them, and, and certainly you can outsource this as well if you develop a good partner with a, a specialty pharmacy that, that, that does this on their own. Um, but I think whatever way you choose to do it, whether it be in-house development, of uh, assistance, whether it be partnering with someone outside, whether it be some combination of both, 
Uh, understanding the landscape is now a critical part of what we do if we're going to take care of these patients because it is a uh, unfortunate just reality for the patients. And then would you say like um, either for you or Dr. Morris that, you know, because of some of the issues around that, um, you know, it sounded like, and this was baked into what you just said, Dr. Lowentritt, is that it's, I think it's important, at least even in our academic practices, to identify maybe one or two or very few, depending on the size of the practice, physician champions that are going to work specifically with that specialty pharmacy people or with these financial issues, not because they necessarily can do it you know, better than someone else. It's just that that dedicated person is going to allow more back and forth, be more fluid, have, their, have the workflow more pinned down. Maybe I'll ask Dr. Morris, in your practice, have you done sort of the same thing that Dr. Lontritz is referring to, of just having a couple people focus on this area and the other urologists maybe refer patients into that practice led by those couple, couple providers? Yes, that's kind of where we rebranded kind of that um, specialty clinic center of excellence idea and kind of stole that from academics as we can't offer multidisciplinary under one roof, but we can offer kind of the center of excellence. And so we kind of termed that the advanced therapeutics because we didn't want to sound a negative connotation of advanced prostate cancer. Um, and, and really it is about understanding day-to-day -to -day touch points on those medications, what their side effects are, dealing with the pharmacy, dealing with the step edits that are involved, just the, the language that you know that needs to go in the note to support the use of the medication. And so we tend to focus that from our group of 25 down to two providers and, and a couple of APPs um, who assist us with that process. And that tends to streamline it. We have you know, nurse navigators who help reach out to the patients. They're really dedicated to advanced prostate cancer patients and our advanced other cancer patients. And so they just are down with the lingo. They understand what an Oxman PET scan is or, or that you need to go get some sort of technetium bone scan. They, they understand the difference between those because they see them every day. Um, and so it's really helped to kind of streamline it down to a few providers. And that's just their area of clinical interest. They just do it uh, kind of on a day in, day out basis. And so, and then another question, and it's something that you brought up earlier, Dr. Morris, was that, you know, sometimes you will refer out to uh, medical oncologists, radiation, on radiation oncologists, et cetera. Um, do either of you think it's, it's, you know, some practices will have their own radiation oncologists inside their practice, they're big enough to do that. Or like, like Dr. Lowentritt said, they have their, I, th I think I heard it correctly, they have some of their specialty pharmacies actually within their practice or they have, or they dispense from within their practice. You know, I don't know if there's any secret sauce. I think maybe Dr. Morris said it in the front. You have to look at how your practice size is, what area you're in and whether you can do it all in-house in or if you have to find good collaborators that are very motivated that are gonna work with you closely. Um, but you know, do you guys have any advice for for people who are kind of building into this area or thinking when do we meet critical mass? Like, is there any is there a secret sauce that you can touch on? I'll I'll speak up, and then I certainly want to hear what Dr. Morris has to say. Uh, you know, the there is no secret sauce. There is no one size fits all kind of approach to this. And I think what's what's happened in a bigger picture now is that even if you're not going to do this, and there are a lot of practices and individuals that have said, you know what, we're just not going to pursue this line of therapy within our practice, we're gonna refer that out. It's getting more and more complex to understand when that appropriate time is to refer them out because almost every study that has shown with similar agents at an earlier stage is a more than lead time you know, uh, advantage to, to survival. So as we get appropriate indications in earlier conditions or as we identify opportunities to do advanced testing for you know, specific genetic markers, if you're not aware of it and looking for it, then you're in some ways, you know, you're, you're missing out for that patient. So I think even if you're not going to do it, you need to be educated on it. But, but there is no one size fits all approach. I think that you know, this is once again, this is building on, we did not, you know, we don't have a radiation oncology associate, you know, uh, uh, connection just for this problem, right? I mean, we, we take care of a number, we take care of a lot of localized prostate cancer and other things. You know, we take, we have medical oncology colleagues that we've worked with, with bladder cancer and, and renal cell and all the other things. So it's building on those relationships in many ways. Um, but one of the realities is that for medical oncology in the community, especially in the, you know, early 2010s, this, it was hard to get people's attention, you know, and, and so I think, 
in some respects, a lot of us took on, on an increased role and maybe a little bit more broad than, than we would have anticipated because there weren't always those, you know, those partners that were fully engaged with prostate cancer, right? I mean, we, we were to be the best advocate, we had to actually be the best, you know, treaters for these patients. So, um, you know, I, I think that every community, every location, every practice is going to have a different approach. Um, but, you know, I think you want to understand where your limit is and then understand what it takes and what you should be looking for to know when to refer. Yeah, I would, I would second that. I mean, you can be a center of excellence, even if you're in a one person group, if you understand the data, we, 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 I mean, we're the specialty that basically is the point touch person for prostate cancer. We do the diagnosis on the front end. We do localized treatment counseling, even for therapies that we don't give, we talk about radiation therapy. So if we're doing a good job for that patient, I think that's part of the natural evolution of dealing with prostate cancer. We're not just localized prostate cancer experts. We are prostate cancer experts. And so if you learn enough about localized prostate cancer to know when to send people on to, for something you don't offer, you can also learn about advanced prostate cancer and, and know when it's time to make appropriate referrals, what sort of genetic counseling is needed at which time point in the disease course, because that's really our kind of our onus as the owners of that space of prostate cancer in general. We don't need to just hand this all off to medical oncology. Otherwise we could just send the radiologist to do the biopsy and then immediately send them to medical oncology to decide what they're going to do. So we, we ought to own prostate cancer as a field. And I think it behooves us to include advanced prostate cancer within that. Um, and we're certainly capable of it. It's we've all done the training. We're all smart enough to learn about side effects of these medications and manage them. We deal with a lot of quality of life issues across the spectrum of GU health. So we can do it in prostate cancer too. You just have to spend a little time on it. And centers of excellence make sense when you have a hundred patients with castrate resistant disease in a group, but it also makes sense for you to understand the basics if you only have four or five castrate resistant patients within your practice, because then you know, all right, this is now to the point where I can't take care of it. I have to send it to somebody else, but I prep them for that transition. Not just like, I'm not even paying attention to that they're castrate resistant. So, um, so on that point, so let's, let's, uh, I'm going to, and that's well said, I'm going to sort of move to the patient with metastatic castrate resistant disease who has a, you know, who's maybe a little bit older, maybe, but maybe not, um, but also maybe has more, more morbidities. And Dr. Lohentritt mentioned some of this before, but I want to specifically see, do you guys have systems in place for, and we'll, we'll go one at a time, but to A, how you approach their genetics, you know, uh, and when you do them, when you don't do them, how you do them. B, how you approach their cardiovascular health. Um, you know, is there a system that you guys always put them through or not, or how, is it disease risk stratified? How you, and how you approach their bone health. And then finally, we'll talk about how you approach the person who's transitioning through multiple therapies and, and sort of getting towards later in, in care. So we'll start, Maybe the uh, more salient one, and maybe somewhat easier, somewhat harder. I'll start with with Dr. Lonetrin and ask about how do you approach the genetic part in your um, in your practice, particularly as they're they're metastatic cancer resistant. So I think the the question really is from the beginning: How are you assessing? Right. I think by the time someone is metastatic castrate resistant they probably for a few years have qualified as someone that you would have wanted to at least do germline testing on, um, you know, because the, the recommendations from all the guidelines are certainly for that metastatic patient, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable approach. Um, but the, the rapid advancements in therapeutics and the understandings about what the somatic changes, the changes in the tumors can, be, can uh, predict as far as response to therapy and overall outlook, um, is essential now too. So I think, you know, it's, it's easy to say, well, I want to pick one test and do it once and think that's the right answer. Uh, but I think what we're learning is that, you know, when the disease is changing, especially now when we have uh, FDA approved NCCN recommend, AUA recommended therapies in this space, um, you, you got to know when to look for it. So once, if a patient was appropriately put on ADT and an oral therapy, and now is failing those therapies by showing progression, um, then they are a candidate if they have the genetic markers for the, the, the current PARP inhibitors that are recommended 
with or whether or not they've had chemo, they may have one or more options. So, you know, you have to be, so that's when I do somatic, somatic testing if I haven't already done it. Truth be told, I'm now doing more somatic testing when I have fresh tissue, when I, if for those patients that are presenting with metastatic disease. So I may already have one piece of information in the databanks. And then we're just trying to, you know, as things change, you're looking for those patients. It's a small percentage and probably a smaller percentage each time you check them a, sec a subsequent time. But these aren't, you know, these aren't, these are just snapshots of one moment in time and, and they may have evolved um, on the therapy. So uh, the bottom line is sort of testing early and when the patients are progressing, testing often, you know, because that's, that's the way to, to get the answers. And that, that's, that's what I do right now is I, I usually, as when the patient has incurable disease, so say newly, even hormone sensitive, newly diagnosed metastatic, from the prostate biopsy tissue that I have, I often will send that for somatic uh, analysis just to see what options they might have, you know, and then if they progress through and there's no options, then I might send circulating free DNA or if we, there's something else to biopsy, we might biopsy that. Dr. Morris, what, what do you do around genetics in your practice? Uh, so I think we were kind of like Ben early to the germline testing options for the metastatic disease and the HBOC guidelines really pushed germline testing to try to catch us up to breast cancer. And so a lot, a lot of large groups around the country have been doing that for several years. And I think that for high-risk patients and patients with family history, there's a whole side argument to why germline testing is important that has to do with kind of population health. Um, and so I think there's a lot of value in that. But in a cost-saving realm, I do it a lot like you just described. If it's a newly diagnosed metastatic disease, um, I tend to send somatic because it gives us answers for germline and somatic at the time of with one test. Um, and then I kind of hold that in my pocket. If there's progression later and there was no mutations, you could theoretically do some sort of a fluid test at that point or a new biopsy. Um, and then for the patients who've uh, been high risk from early on, but maybe weren't metastatic, uh, I will often have a germline answer already about that patient. And so then we're looking, do we have recent tissue that I could do uh, some sort of archival tissue from the last five to 10 years that I could try to order a somatic test? Or are we looking at the newer liquid options that are available? And kind of the last option, I think for most of us is a new biopsy, just because that's never really been the standard within prostate cancer or urology. If you go to a tumor board, for almost any other tumor type, that's like the first question answer is, let's get some tissue out of that and send it to the radiologist and they'll biopsy it. But given the fact that bone disease is so predominant and bone biopsies historically have given poor results for this sort of uh, genetic testing, I think it's gonna take a while before urologists start to think, oh, let's biopsy that metastatic thing to figure out if you have a genetic mutation that's a driver mutation where we could choose a therapy. And that's a, that's a good point. And I think for a lot of it, when, certainly when I was in the community practices, um, the, the thing that would be a trigger for me to, to say, let's do a new biopsy on the, in the uh, MCRPC space was often like a progression to M1C disease and like some visceral met. And then, you know, you really want to look for that neuroendocrine or some kind of, you know, you know, other phenotype. While we're on this subject, you know, I'll ask you guys, so, you know, as, as you know, you both mentioned, there's now FDA approval of, of the PARP inhibitors and depending on what therapies you've had in progressive metastatic CRPC, they can, they can have those. Um, are you guys as urologists, are you, how is your approach to the Turlaparib and Rucaparib? Are you administering um, the PARP inhibitors? Are you referring to Medonc? And if you're administering it, or even for any other therapy, what are, what are you doing in terms of starting them on it and then how you're doing the follow-up. I'll Dr. pick on Dr. Morris, go ahead. Sure, so uh, we started uh, from a trial perspective, PARP inhibitor trials about two or three years ago. So um, luckily for us, we were able to get our feet wet in a trial program using PARP inhibitors and have been now for several years. So with approval, we'd already had experience and exposure, but certainly doing it on label without the kind of overwatch of a trial you're taking all of the kind of burden on yourself to know when to do lab evaluations, when to come back for imaging. And so that's a little bit of teaching yourself. Um, it's different than androgen receptor targeted therapies. I think anyone who's given one or read about them recognizes the side effect profile is different, but it's manageable. Um, and it's also recognizing that it's a subset of our patients. So AR responses are great for almost everyone right out of the box. So there's this 
feeling like I'm doing a good thing. Look, this PSA came down, you're going to do well. These patients tend to have already progressed. Um, they're maybe not as uh, medically fit as the first line therapy patients. So you're taking on a little bit more risk in using the product and you just need to be aware of that. But we've been using now for several years and I've been using since the approvals this year. Um, and I think that um, it's something that's fairly easy to set up protocols within your own practice and feel comfortable giving it. Now, if you don't feel comfortable checking CBCs to monitor for anemia, then it may be better off being sent to a medical oncologist in your community. They'd be happy to see that patient, especially if you've already done the genetic testing and said, here's a BRCA2 patient. I'd like this person to potentially get a lap rib. They're going to be very happy to see that patient and consider starting them. Um, so uh, you just, you can find a partner, but the important thing for us is to do the testing and at least have an idea if they have another option that's not just chemotherapy. And then uh, from there, we typically bring patients back early for lab evaluations and AE monitoring almost every month for the first several months, and then start to space it out if they've done well and their imaging shows that they're actually not progressing. Uh, because not everybody responds to PARP inhibitors, even though they're targeted therapies, we like to think it's gonna be a cure because it's specifically chosen for them. That's just not the case. And so we need to keep monitoring for progression. You know, and one thing that was, uh, you're absolutely right, and one thing that was brought up in session two of this series, um, which should be up online, is that, you know, like, unlike ADT also, the PARP inhibitors, the PSA 50, which can happen, it doesn't often happen as early as the ADT inhibitors. So, like, you know, again, as you look for progression or response, you know, get, you sometimes have to give it some time. And I saw some head nods and shakes. So, uh, Dr. Lowentrate, you kind of feel that that's true, right? That was sort of one of our... Um, that yeah. Yeah. I think we've seen that, you know, and, and, and I think the experience on trials was certainly helpful, but I, I also, you know, now seeing patients that have been on it and, and, and yeah, you seem to tend to see these, these dips and plateaus and dips and, you know, they, they don't necessarily drop and drop and drop, but they, they don't rise like they were before. And I think that's an, an improvement as well. And the only th other thing that I'll say is that um, kind of going on in the no one size fits all approach. One of the ways that, that we've been able to sort of expand the reach and, and, and improve on some of the uh, specialization of this is in how we utilize our APPs. Um, because practically, and, and you know, it's difficult to see all these patients if you have a, a robust practice you know, as often as they need to be seen, which may be every month. Certainly for patients starting on a PARP inhibitor, I would say at least every month. Some of the other therapies, I still prefer them to be seen every two and at most every three months. Um, so, you know, we have a number of protocols that, you know, we've been able to set up that our APPs then can do the monitoring maintenance kind of check-ins and I'm always available if there's a patient issue or if there's, you know, something going on. So it's a way to expand the reach and keep it from dominating the practice of, you know, we're still surgeons. We still sometimes are unavailable for, you know, long cases and days at a time. Um, so it's, it's important to kind of build that team and, and not make it a, uh, um, all about, you know, one person, even if you're developing specialization, if you have the ability to do that. Um, if you don't have the ability to do that, I still think it's important to build a team with whomever you have that has an interest in taking care of these patients, uh, whether it's directly or indirectly through support. So I, I think, um, you know, that, that's, that's an important part of this is that, and that's not just true of the PARPs, that's true of most of what's in this space now. These patients just warrant a closer look. You know, it's not a give them a shot and see them back six months population. And that's, and that's an excellent uh, segue towards our second segment. Um, so for the, for the ending of this segment, we just want everyone to take home a few key points. One, as was mentioned, the urologists continue to play a large, if not the largest role across the prostate cancer care continuum. They're there at diagnosis and they're there all throughout the continuum to the end. Um, and even if you do use your MedOncs or, or refer, you know, you'll always have a hand in the, in the management and you actually always should because you might have the most expertise in the area. The second is that um, these patients, particularly ones with progressive disease, and when we think about precision medicine therapy or ones that are going through lines of treatment, they're often going to need frequent and more comprehensive medical um, evaluations when treating this advanced disease. You heard from both Dr. Morris and Dr. Lowentritt that say with PARP inhibitors, bringing patients back every month to do labs, you know, look for toxicities, look at physical um, uh, um, effects you know, is important, particularly early on as they start their new therapies. The third is that, you know, precision medicine is here. Genetic evaluations are key to understanding who we can treat with what. 
Um, we tend to get try to get them early. Um, germline genetics for things like cascade testing and also opportunities for the patient and somatic genetics to look at some of these new opportunities around things like PARP inhibitors. And most of us are well aware that there will be more and more approvals for different spectrums of targeted therapeutics as we go on. So now we'll go on to our second segment, which has to do with you know shared decision making, which is you know sometimes like a a little bit of a a, a buzzword, and I and you know the more I actively talk about it with colleagues, the more I actually understand about how I feel about shared decision making, what it really means. And maybe I'll start with Dr. Morris and say, well, what does shared decision making mean to you, Dr. Morris? Well, uh, I think for me as a physician and also as a patient perspective. It's that idea that both of our values matter. And sometimes the guidelines may say that combination therapy is best. That's what's best for the cancer treatment. But when you talk with that patient, their goals of treatment uh, may not align with necessarily focusing on cancer control. And, and this does come up in advanced prostate cancer because you have older, frailer men. And they may say, you know, the toxicity profile from adding another medication on top of this may not really jive with what I'm interested in, in terms of quality of life, even though most of these are, are tolerated fairly well, they may be more focused on their quality of life and cost and their impact on their day-to-day -day life than they are about what might happen 12 or 14 months from now. Um, and as long as you're upfront with them as the disease state expert about here's what your options are, here's what the guidelines recommend, here are what the side effects could be, and then what are your goals in terms of therapy? How would you like us to focus your care, then they feel like it's a team decision. And I, I like to get them involved early with that because eventually, no matter how good our therapy is, it's going to fail. And we're then having kind of end of life discussions. And that's new for urology to have kind of end of life care discussions around hospice and palliative care. And I like them to have that thought process up front. So it's not a shock when they're sitting there and on their fourth line of therapy it's almost like they're flabbergasted that they hear that this is potentially a lethal prostate cancer. And we talk about, you know, you remember this discussion two or three years ago, like we're, we've talked about the fact that your type of prostate cancer tends to be the one that leads to death. So not that you're having to think about it now when you're responding, but that's something I want you and your spouse or you and your family to talk about so that when we get to that point, it's not me springing it on you and, and you're part of the decision on what you want to do. So that's kind of how I view shared decision-making, at least in the advanced setting. And then Dr. Lowentritt, you know, are there any special, because these are hard discussions, a lot of times, you know, for the patient, you know, I think that often, and even for myself, when I've been a patient, I, I sort of think, it's hard for me to think long-term, you know, and things are going to happen later. You know, are there, and, and these are complex issues, complex medications, you know, are there any approaches or tools that you found that can be particularly helpful when you're approaching, kind of informing the patient and doing the shared decision-making? No, it, it is very difficult because these are overwhelming conversations for the patients for certain. I mean, they're, they're difficult on us over time too. Um, but I, I think what, what Dr. Morris said about starting early with this discussion is really critical. And, and I, and I do tell patients very early on, I say, listen, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to present an aggressive path to you at every step, because part of my job is to make sure you understand the options, but I, you know, you got to be able to give them the space to say no and, and the okay, that it's okay to say no, and they're not disappointing you, but that they, you know, you really get them to understand it. I think the other critical aspect of this is when possible to bring the caregivers along with them, the family members, the, the spouses, the, 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 the children, uh, whoever it may be for that person, because then that, that discussion really becomes, uh, you really get more insight into what the true living situation is. And, and frankly, never wanna put the patient in the position where maybe they haven't shared everything with their family because they didn't wanna burden them and now they can't make the decision and you've had these discussions and the family doesn't, even if it's not in the formal process of a, of a living will, which I do advance, you know, advanced directive, which I encourage my patients to, to work on, that's outside of the scope of, of what we normally do, but it's mainly those conversations with their family that are gonna help set them up for the long-term. And Dr. Morris, um, you know, beyond what we kind of just discussed, you know, in the earlier segment, we were talking about how it may be important to build your multidisciplinary team and know what medical oncologists or which ones you might refer to when important, who's your, your go-to genetic counselors, who are your go-to radiate radonks. 
around this for shared decision making, um, does your team have like a go-to team of like, for example, you know, you mentioned hospice, like, you know, people who social work, you know, or, you know, hospice care people or, or rehab people or that kind of thing. Do you have, do you have, what are the other go-to elements that providers should think about having in their Rolodex? I, I think it's a great um, skill set that we just don't really have within urology. And so we lean pretty heavily on home nursing, home PT and OT, and most of those um, kind of home health uh, have within them some sort of home hospice setup. So they can actually do quite a bit of counseling to the patient. And I actually like to present it to them as like, this is a, you know, it's almost like a buffet. We're going to send this person to your house and they're going to show you all these different options. And you don't have to say, you can say no, but I want you to know what the options are so that later it's not as much of a shock and you can be thinking ahead about what could be coming. And so we, we tend, we, it really geographically, it can be hard because we have patients that are from all around a city and live in different areas. And you have to find a vendor that works in that area or that is within their payer network. So it's a little bit different than just saying, you know, I have Northwestern palliative care down the hall. I want you to see them. So for me, it's more of a, I know you live on the North side of town. There's a vendor that is there and, and does a good job with home health and also has home hospice services. And so we have, you know, almost like a Rolodex of, of teams that I can call to say, I'd like to make this patient get a referral to you. Palliative care is a little bit harder because that's not quite to hospice and you can still have ongoing uh, cancer there while you're getting palliative treatments. Um, the medical oncology groups tend to have more of a palliative service within their um, clinics. And so sometimes I can refer into their palliative care provider. Um, and so it's just important for you to try to find out what's available. And, and it's gonna be totally different if you're in a suburban versus a rural area but you will, you will almost always have a home health service that is around that it can't hurt to have a, them see your patient evaluate them at home. And then you guys probably, I know that uh, both of you probably utilize this. And in fact, like I mentioned in the beginning, Dr. Lowentritt serves on uh, kind of the clinician advisory for Xero. Um, but do you also encourage men to kind of be part of some kind of peer group, like, a, you know, where they're like, you know, they have like a man-to-man -man or, or, a, or a Xero effort or some kind of patient-related you know, cooperative group? So we, we do, we've encouraged some different survivorship programs and, and it's tough because survivorship for prostate cancer is, is very broad. A lot of these are men recovering from local side effects from, you know, primary therapy. Um, and then others are patients that have progressive, you know, lethal disease. Um, we, we definitely encourage that. And we've, we've, we've hooked up with some of the local um, Hopewell and other types of, of, uh, support services that are available in different communities. Um, and even some of the palliative care, I mean, palliative care initially essentially was just an offshoot of inpatient care. And, you know, now is more and more having outpatient availability. So, you know, we've been able to make those connections and, and, and they have support groups often within them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been a broad, we, we've just had to sort of stay in tune and, and in touch to understand how those practices are evolving because they're rapidly changing as well yeah. to and service the community at large. For sure, for the, for the better. I mean, we now see them, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, it's the support groups that they don't only talk about their disease, but they'll talk about nutrition, about right. exercise, you know, and, and I think, um, and it's great that we've, we're sort of evolving that way. Sometimes it's hard to find the right one, um, but I think that it's great that we're evolving that way. So from the second segment on shared decision-making, we just want to make the key points to the audience that, you know, shared decision-making is an active process between the patient and provider. You're informing the patient about their disease, about the therapeutics. The patient is informing you to a large extent about what they want out of their life, what their goals are. And it's also active in that it doesn't happen, like Dr. Morris said, just one time, but it sort of happens multiple times around the continuum of their care so that as their attitudes may change or their desires change, you can be in tune and can kind of coach them through it. As Dr. Lowentrip mentioned, one of the best things that we can do as providers is include their family members and their caregivers in the discussion of their care, because then we can make optimal treatment decisions. And, you know, we're not doing it in a, in a vacuum. We're all sort of together in how are we going to provide the best care for this gentleman with advanced prostate cancer. And so we'll move to the, the last segment, um, which is going to focus on um, telemedicine, which has become an increasingly large part of our, of our lives. And, you know, specifically around, you know, how we deal with telemedicine for our patients with advanced prostate cancer. 
You know, I'll start with Dr. Morris. He was mentioning a lot of his patients come from many different areas. You know, how has your team been incorporating telemedicine? Don't say just in general in your practice, but in the advanced prostate cancer clinic, or, or I should say your advanced care clinic, you know, what, how are you using telemedicine there? So uh, it's enabled us to do some of those touch points that are side effect management as much as anything else. Uh, especially for people that have to travel long distances. These are frailer gentlemen. They may not have transportation easily obtainable. And so uh, it's, it's somewhat easy for also people that have been lost to follow up due to COVID or have restrictions because they're in a nursing facility and they can't leave the facility or they have to quarantine for two weeks. So we've, we've had a lot of you know, slip into our regular clinic flow. This is a telemedicine visit with this uh, patient who you've been managing. And it's a chance to basically check on, are you taking your medications? Are you having side effects? All right, fine. Before you talk to me, the next time we're going to range imaging, we can do almost all of that without laying hands on someone. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but that the art of the physical exam, especially for advanced prostate cancer is somewhat going away. And we can do a lot of this through telemedicine. Uh, now there's some challenges because these are also 80 and 90 year old men and um, flip phones may still be a thing or no cell phone may be a thing. So it can be challenging uh, to work around some of those technical issues. But I think patients love to have contact with their physician. They like to be able to feel like they can have their questions answered. And if you can do it through a video interface, be it Zoom, whatever your, your method is, it's, um, it's nice because you can actually see the patient and make sure that they don't, you can sometimes eyeball a patient and say, oh, things are not going well with this medication. Even though Bill is telling me everything is fine, I can see him and it's not going fine. So we need to uh, you know, we really need to get you into the office to do some things. Uh, but you can do a lot of that with home lab draws and imaging that's obtained offsite, and then you're able to look at it. So I think it's just enable us to have more touch points with that patient. Um, and they feel that care. Uh, obviously, when you're talking about intense monitoring, we're not having to have them come in every month. That's a real change for urology clinics versus six-month follow-ups. And so it's enabled us to kind of have a little bit more throughput. Dr. Longtree, what are um, a couple of the more major barriers you've seen with telemedicine and um, how is your how is your clinic um, sort of dealt with them or tried to deal with those? Yeah, I mean, it's mostly technology and just trying to to some extent replicate the 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 workflow of a normal office visit so that you make sure you have their updated labs and imaging and everything in the system so that you can actually review them and you know in, in advance of or at the time of the visit. Um, a lot of the, the difficulty is on the patient side with technology. That's still, you know, that's an unavoidable. Um, but, you know, what we found is that probably, you know, since we've all adjusted from when everything was telehealth a year ago to where is telehealth now going to continue on? And this is a very clear example of, of an ideal use for telehealth when you can make it work. Um, for, for getting those extra touch points and, and for patients that have difficulty with transportation. I mean, it's, it's a really critical part of, of keeping that contact and being able to do a little bit better than just a quick phone call or, a, hey, yeah, you say you're okay because you refilled your medication and, you know, or something like that. I mean, there's, there's actually the ability to, to, to truly have a discussion about how they're doing. I think that's, this is a, this is a sweet spot for telehealth, I think, for the long term. That's an excellent point. And actually, you know, sort of like, you know, Dr. Morris was insinuating, um, you know, some of the answers to the way society is going is going to be actually more technology. So you can imagine five years from now, patients might have things like wearables that are telling us when they're not doing well. You know, they may have, you know, there they may be easy ways that they can do their labs from home, you know, and send them in that become more and more accessible. Um, so that's excellent. And so our, our points here in this third third uh, um, um, topic is one, telemedicine is here to stay. And as I was sort of alluding to, it's probably just gonna expand more and more. Um, it obviously has associated limitations and barriers. I think if you have a willing group that wants to work with patients, I think we talked earlier um, with like particularly advanced, uh, uh, advanced practitioners, staff, nurses that can help figure out how we can either get them um, to these tele telehealth visits, do video or counsel them through how to set up the video chats are preferred, but even telephone calls can actually become part of our, our practices and allow for a lot of information, although not ideal. Um, 
we have a, a few minutes before we um, do the uh, follow-up assessment to go to some questions and answers from the audience. Um, one question that came, and please use the question answer um, um, box to put them in if you if you have them. One question that came in is, you know, what are some of the specific companies that you use for genetic testing? Before you answer that, um, for Dr. Morris or Dr. Lowentritt, maybe to keep it like sort of unbiased, talk about, well, what are the things you look for in your genetic testing companies or, or partners? Um, I'll start with just a touch on that. I mean, there are a host of commercial, reputable uh, services that are very similar sort of panels. They have multiplex genes. Everybody has their own flavor to their panel. But for the most part, the reputable companies, it really is going to come down to can't, do you have somebody local who can help you with issues when it arises in terms of ordering the test or getting the test results back or billing issues? Even though these should be covered entities, there's always something that's going to come up. And if you don't have someone that you know to contact, I would warn against just sending off random tests because the next thing you know, you're going to be the point of contact for that patient and for any issue that comes up. Uh, several of the companies offer telegenetic counseling for those that may be in areas that don't have easy access. I live in Nashville, a huge urban center. And we only have like one genetic counselor that I can utilize. So um, telegenetics are service lines that many of the companies will offer. Um, and then they offer kind of the science side where if you have a question specifically about this mutation, I don't know what these, this acronym means, um, that often you can talk to someone before you then go talk to the patient. So those are some of the wish list items for me. I'm not as focused on turnaround time of three days versus one week. In my hands, honestly, I'm ordering it early enough that hopefully three days is not going to make a difference to them getting this test result back. So I think that, uh, honestly, I wrote down my list because there's like five of them in each of the categories, somatic and germline, that I feel very comfortable ordering. I have their order sheets in my cabinet downtown. And sometimes depending on what that patient situation is, I may order one or another. Um, and I hate to say like, oh, you'd need to use this company. I've used almost all of them because I wanted to have experience with almost all of them. And now I can say, I'm slowly figuring out which ones are my favorites, but they tend to be the ones that service me locally. And it has nothing to do necessarily with their science or what their test result or what their color of their report is that gets sent back to me. That's a great point. And I, actually, I think that you, you what we have seen is like, you know, uh, a lot of these different companies have sort of normalized. For a while, some of them would be offering, you know, germline and somatic, and not some of them just, you know, somatic. Some of them were doing like a loss of heterozygosity score, which, you know, or, or homologous recombination deficiency score that, you know, might predict PARP inhibitor susceptibility. You're seeing that in more, more of them. Some of them are doing larger panels or smaller panels. And to your point, particularly when you're servicing a large area, I agree wholeheartedly, particularly when I was in the community, that excellent customer service and knowing, you know, who you're going to, you know, who you're going to call when you have a question as the provider, who are you going to link in when you need that genetic support for the patient trumps a, a lot. Who's going to do the financial assistance? It trumps a lot of these things. Um, Dr. Lowentritt, another question came in from our, um, um, from our group that said, you know, are you how selective are you, and it goes back to sort of our sessions like um, from previous ones of these, but um, you know, in the, in the elaborate trial, there was cohort A and B, um, there was even differences in cohort A. Are you basically saying, let's give PARP inhibitors to your BRCA2 patients, BRCA2 and BRCA1 patients? How do you deal with patients that are in that cohort B where it's like a, a hodgepodge of different, um, you know, homologous recombination repair mutations. How do you select who to give your PARP inhibitors to? Yeah, I think this sort of, this gets together with everything that we were talking about, right? I think for those patients, and, and, and frankly, in practice, I don't really think it's the 28% that was seen in, in the trials. It's probably a little bit less than that. I think those are some pre-screened patients probably in something else, who knows what. But, you know, say it's a quarter of patients, roughly. I certainly want to give those patients an opportunity to see the benefit of a medicine like Elaparib if they can take it. Because there's, you know, the other options that are out there don't go away if three months later you, you have seen no response or you've seen further progression. And I think it's that even though you don't necessarily expect to see a PSA response, you do want to check and see if there's imaging progression. So these are patients that I'm imaging earlier 
um, in the you know two or three months afterwards, if they're progressing on drug, I'm moving on to the next thing because they we know that these patients are, are going to progress rapidly. So I am for for any indication that I can, I'm going to try a patient on it if if they're willing to to do it and if they're appropriate otherwise. Um, because I think it's it's only all you do you never you never see the benefit for a treatment that you don't try. And you know I think there's an opportunity to try to be too thread the needle too finely and just miss a whole opportunity for a patient. If it were me, I, you know, I'd want that opportunity. You gotta be frank with them and say, we don't really know if, you know, we gotta watch you closely because there's still a good chance it may not fully, you know, control it the way we want, but at least you have a chance, you know. Dr. Morris, your thoughts on that? And then we'll go on to the final questions. Yes, I, I like casting a large net. These patients are there for PARP inhibitor discussions mainly because they've run out of other great easy to use options and they have a targeted therapy. If this were a first line therapy before any AR agent, we'd probably be more selective on who we use it in. But I think at this kind of second, third line therapy, they don't have a lot of other great options sometimes. Um, and I say, we're going to cast a broad net. And if you respond great, um, just because you're bracket two doesn't mean you're going to respond because there's still some bracket two didn't respond. So I just say, we treat you the same. I like, I like that the inclusion in the label includes a lot of things so that I have flexibility and then we try it. And if it doesn't work, we can move on to something else. But I do at least counsel them on the front end. You know, some of the mutations may respond better than others. And we just don't know which one you're going to be until we try. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and I think that I was actually happy to see how the FDA approved it as well. They didn't, they didn't go super restrictive. They said there's still a lot to learn about that cohort B for the profound study. Um, and as we mentioned sort of before, there are people that we think are going to be better responders. There are BRCA2 mutations, BRCA1, biallelic loss. Um, but there's people we just don't know, and it can be worth a try. You don't have to have them on therapy that long. Thank you, everybody. 